Hey everyone, the It's All Journalism team wanted to remind you that we have an email newsletter where you can get all the latest news about our podcast. Go to our website, itsalljournalism.com, and follow the link to subscribe. Thanks, and enjoy the episode. Human-scale social media is what we need, right? Human-scale being not amplified, not computer-driven, but allowing the interaction between humans to filter out the, the kind of weird ideas like we would, you know, in normal conversation. From sustainability to shrinking newsrooms, the news industry has plenty of monumental issues it needs to resolve. But for our democracy's sake, restoring trust in the news industry may be the most urgent problem we face. I'm Michael O'Connell. Welcome to It's All Journalism. Don Colosino is a producer, writer, and a director whose documentary work has aired on Colorado PBS and Amazon Prime Video. His current project, Trusted Sources, is tackling a subject that's near and dear to the producers of this podcast, the importance of trustworthy news to our society. Don, welcome to It's All Journalism. Oh, thanks for having me. So first of all, tell me a little bit about your background. How'd you get into video production? How did you, how'd you become a documentarian? Oh gosh, it's something I've been doing for a long time. Not not so much in video. I started in the days of uh, audio tape and radio, but I, I had a career in high tech marketing, business to business marketing, and I made a career change a few years ago to make films. Went to film school to learn how to do it the professional way. The issue of misinformation and news came to my attention while I was in film school. So while I was there, I made a documentary called Winner Take All, which I think you had heard of. As you mentioned, it was broadcast on local PBS, uh, streaming on Amazon. And actually now it's expanded to Apple TV Plus and Tubi. But there was more misinformation that you know came up in the run, run up to the 2016 election. And it just got worse from there. That statement that uh, one of the candidates made that the, the press was the enemy of the people, that really got my attention. And then in 2019, a report from the Knight Foundation, also published by the Aspen Institute and with the survey data from Gallup titled Crisis in Democracy, Renewing Trust in America, that report came out and they ranked 15 institutions for trust. Newspapers were 11th lowest out of the 15 in terms of trust. TV news was 13th. Can you guess what institution ranked 15th dead last? Uh, probably a politician. <laughs> Congress, actually. Congress, Congress yeah. <laughs> so, you know, trust is a critical element of in functioning democracies, right? That was actually a statement out of that report. If you have too little, you have political dysfunction. If you have too much trust, you wind up with autocracy. But that was the spark that really put me on this path. Our democracy was at risk. Yeah. And again, this is stuff that we've talked about many times on the podcast. I will say as a, you know, as a working journalist who's been a journalist for better part of three decades, I can tell you, you know, people don't like journalists, period. I don't think that that's necessarily a new phenomenon. <laughs> we've been fighting with politicians for the, for the bottom of the heap for as long as I can remember. But there was never a call to not only, you know, not believe anything that the press tells you, but, you know, maybe you want to get in their face. Maybe you want to get physically aggressive with them if you happen to meet one on the street. And those types of things are concerning for sure. So first, let's talk about this first documentary that you did. Tell me about that and kind of what, what the reception of that was. 
Well, Winner Take All started out as a film school project. And in Colorado at the time, we had a bill that was moving through the state legislature to pass a national popular vote law. And I don't know if you're familiar with with that, but several states in the union have already passed these laws. And the idea is that once enough states sign on to this bill to, to equal 270 electoral votes, instead of assigning all of each state's electoral votes to the winner of the state popular vote, they now assign them to the winner of the national popular vote. So you're still using the electoral college, doesn't require a constitutional amendment, everything is within the constitutional guidelines or rules set up at the founding of this country. It's just that now we're basing our elections on the national popular vote instead of what can be a gerrymandered electoral map. So what was happening at the time was that I was seeing lots of news accounts in local you know, news media and even national news media that fundamentally misunderstood either A, what the bill was intended to do or was doing, or B, how the electoral college worked. So I thought, oh, this is a good subject for, you know, film school here for a documentary. But then I started seeing more and more of this. And so I made it into a half an hour documentary. So it was PBS length and and that really got some traction. And the interesting thing is today it's still streaming. And this was done three or four years ago. And in fact, it seems like streaming is picking up. So people are interested in the topic. They're interested in having kind of an explainer on how all this stuff works that we may not have studied since high school civics class. I don't even know if they offer those anymore. And so I thought, yeah, this is something that I can do that's going to be really helpful to society and uh, satisfying to me. So you move on to Trusted Sources, which is the new documentary. You know, what inspired you to do that? And, you know, what was your initial, okay, how am I going to, this is how I'm going to do that. I started seeing this issue of mistrust in news in the run-up to the 2016 election. And, you know, people were talking about, you know, fake news and misinformation. And when I read this Knight Foundation report, again, it was called Crisis in Democracy, Renewing Trust in America. And it's been updated since then as well. It was interesting to me because it not only outlined a number of reasons for mistrust, it also proposed some solutions. And, you know, I'm kind of a solutions-oriented person. When I see something wrong, I like to see it fixed. I thought, Mark, is anyone actually acting on these recommendations? But what I learned from that report was only about 20% of Americans trust news today, depending on how you slice it. Actually, if you if you ask people what their level of trust is in the news media in general, today, I think it's hovering around, I don't know, 40%, something like that. If you ask them specifically about newspapers, television, and news on the internet, you'll get a low of about 20%. And, you know, without news, we don't have the information that we need to maintain our democracy. You know, we don't have good information to uh, to shape our vote. We don't have good information to base what we tell our legislators and what we ask them to do. You know, we can't even stay healthy because we're more prone to misinformation. And that's, you know, caused people to take horse pills for, you know, <laughs> it's just really alarming. But this isn't a new issue. You know, we've been here before several times in our history. You know, just so many different sources of mistrust. But it happens, I think, in general, when new voices come into the the communication sphere. 
low-cost printing technology, for example, allowed for the first time the non-wealthy to publish newspapers. So that brought in voices of the, the common citizen. When the telegraph came into the communication sphere, it brought reporting from other parts of the country, new voices, new perspectives. Radio and television broadcasting brought still more. Cable TV brought in news that was targeted at specific audience niches. And then the internet, of course, allows everyone to be a publisher. Each time there was a period of trust decline, followed by a period of adjustment and reform. And those reforms took you know, the form of government regulation, the establishment of professional organizations, you know, journalism organizations that promoted ethics and standards, and consolidation of the media as you know, these new market entrants you know, began to be absorbed into larger ones. We, we see this happening today, too, in all kinds of industries, right? In that sort of, you know, mix, one of the things you didn't talk about was social media. How is that helping to sort of spread this level of mistrust of, of news and, and people who are reporting the news? Algorithms, I think, are what really amplify sensational content. You know, responsible reporting then gets buried because these social media algorithms are promoting the things that keep us engaged longer with the platform. And those are usually, you know, inflammatory things, things that make us very emotional. So we keep clicking on those and going down the rabbit hole of what ends up being either misinformation or opinion disguised as news. Francis Hogan, the Facebook whistleblower, testified before Congress that Facebook's prioritization of what they call meaningful social interactions or MSIs directly changed publishers' behavior and caused politicians to take positions that their constituents don't like or approve of, right? And it's because they're trying to keep you engaged. So, you know, when people are exposed to ideas that aren't true over and over again, eventually erodes their ability to connect with the community at large. And that was another of her points in, in her testimony last year. Yeah. And before we, we turn on the mics, we had a little conversation. And, and I mentioned that I'd recently done a presentation for some uh, Malaysian journalists about disinformation. And to your point about social media, one of the things that it does is it creates these echo chambers where, you know, it bunches people together who have similar interests, similar beliefs, and similar likes. And it creates an environment where there's no self-checking. You know, if you're in a room of, you know, 10 people with, you know, different opinions, if somebody says something that's false, someone may very well call them out on it and mm -hmm. challenge it. And so basically you're, you're creating places where people aren't challenged. The, the things they say aren't challenged and they become, you know, indoctrinated or it's easier for them to share the most outrageous information because they perceive it as true. It is because it's coming from somebody that they supposedly know or that believes what they believe. And so therefore, you know, because of the group dynamic, I believe that it's true, you know, and dig in my heels and, and I'm going to fight you on it. And so without these sort of social norms or even, you know, a media environment where people aren't listening to opposing opinions or, you know, people uh, taking apart their arguments, then there just doesn't seem to be a way to sort of break this sort of trap that, that people find themselves in. Well, you're absolutely right. And not only is it different than, you know, the face-to-face -face conversation in the sense that someone would call them out on a really weird idea, but 
the social media algorithms amplify that stuff because we would tend to want to call it out, right? For example, what Frances Hagen in her testimony referred to as human scale social media is what we need, right? Human scale being not amplified, not computer driven, allowing the, the interaction between humans to filter out the, the kind of weird ideas like we would, you know, in normal conversation. To your point again about the amplification of it is that the algorithms reward the extreme because the extreme is something that is shared more rapidly, more widely. The New York Times did a, a really great piece a few years back about this man and this, and this woman in, in Ohio who, during the 2016 election, you know, they had no experience as journalists. They had no experiences writing news stories. They had no exposure to what uh, news ethics were. And they were writing these stories that were very pro-Trump around these rumors and things that they saw. And they discovered that the more inflammatory the headline, the more clicks they got. And the more clicks they got, you know, Facebook rewarded them with more revenue. So they just started making up the most, you know, insane headlines <laughs> to sort of game the system and earn more and more money and get more and more clicks. And eventually, and this was after this sort of the pushback after the 2016 election, Facebook sort of had cut back on some of that, you know, the monetization of those types of posts. But things like that still occur. And there are other examples of that since then. So you're putting together this documentary. And I know you said that you like solutions. Who are you talking to? And, you know, who do you see as your audience? Well, I see my audience primarily as, you know, people who care about news and who care about democracy. That sounds pretty broad, but really, you know, it's people who are very socially conscious, I think. And I think there are people who just plain don't know what to trust because there's so much information coming at us today, much of it in the guise of news, but it's really not news. It's either opinion or advocacy of some position. And people just want to learn what to trust. So, you know, this documentary is designed not only to talk about the causes of mistrust, but to really focus on what we can all do, what some are doing that are, you know, insiders in the industry, journalists, for example, and what the rest of us can do. And, you know, it's things like being more media literate, for example, or really scrutinizing a source of something before you forward it on to somebody else. So, yeah, I, I see it as, you know, people who pay attention to a lot of news, who care about the news, who want to learn what to trust. Maybe, you know, PBS watchers, NPR listeners, and, you know, just anyone else who cares. Those people, one would think, who are interested in the media, who are listening, you know, PBS, you know, viewers, NPR listeners, probably have a pretty good internal mechanism to sort of spot things like this. I, I mean... Is this sort of wide of an, an audience enough to really have an effect? Well, I think it's more than that, though. I think you know, no one wants to be fooled, right? And I don't care what side of the, what end of the political spectrum you're on. You want to get the, the straight story. You really would rather not have someone tell you what to think. You want to make up your own mind. And that really, I think, is the, the core audience for a film like this. You're someone who cares. You don't want to be fooled. And the interesting thing is, you know, if you ask people, as Gallup has done, you know, whether the news media is trustworthy, they'll tell you no. You know, I mean, statistically, a very small number will say it's trustworthy. But if you ask them about their media, the media they pay attention to, people think, oh, my media is, is fine. 
And so I think we need to all learn to, to really think about how to tell the difference. So do you think that there's capacity for people who are set in their beliefs? Because that's the other thing that's come out of this is that, you know, people tend to give more credence to websites, social media, news stories that support whatever their stance is politically, you know, religiously, whatever. Are people able to, you know, given the, an opposing viewpoint, take that in and then maybe utilize that? It's not even so much accepting a viewpoint that's not your own. I think it's more looking for the the tells, we'll say, to make a poker analogy here, right, of what makes something maybe, you know, not so trustworthy. Like, was the person who's telling you this on the ground, did they see it themselves, right? What kind of words do they use? Do they use emotional words, descriptive words, or do they use, you know, just more objective and factual words, and that's one of the things that you'll see in the film. There's uh, a person named Vanessa Otero who has created the media bias chart, which many of your uh, you know, listeners may have seen on the web. She opens up how they do their analysis and, in fact, offer training to you know, individual citizens and, and schools on how to do this analysis for yourself. So you know, it's a way to sort of remove yourself from the uh, ideologies or the filter bubble that you may be in and just look at something at a higher level. There are several frustrating things about the political environment that we're in and its relationship to the news and media. You know, as you said before, fake news, can't trust the news. That sort of message is being pushed out so that people will distrust an opposing viewpoint. But this idea that hypocrisy and shame, which used to be very powerful elements in, in the national debate, seem to have really taken it on the chin. People will say, that, say and do the most outrageous things because they're getting attention. And if a person is not shamed by something, I think about this a lot when I look at something like the, the Washington Post doing a you know, counting the number of lies that President Trump said during his presidency. It was at the end, I think it was it was over 35,000, I think, at the end. But, but the thing is, once you get past 100, I think that the most rational person might say, yeah, this person lies. So then it's like, okay, we're counting up all these lies up into 35,000. And by the end, it's like, what did this exercise accomplish? <laughs> Except to show maybe that people who who have no shame or, or who are not concerned about opposing viewpoints can pretty much say and do anything they want. I guess that's more of a statement than a question. <laughs> right. Well, you know, it's interesting, though. Soledad O'Brien actually had also testified before Congress, I think it was earlier in the year last year. Her main recommended solution, this was for aimed at broadcast news, just don't book liars on your show because it elevates the lies and presents the lie as another side. And that's absolutely right. It's not that you need to call out the lie necessarily. I mean, yes, you need to call it out, but, you know, don't keep amplifying it. For sure. And I think that's something that took a while for a lot of broadcasters to realize, unfortunately. But that's part of the, you know, the issue that we're dealing with at that level. But where are you at in the, the, the documentary's production? We're in early stage production right now. I've got some film in the can and we're getting ready to uh, go out on the road because this is going to have national scope. For example, I have Rod Hicks, who is the director of ethics and diversity with the Society of Professional Journalists. He's based in Philadelphia. 
I'll be talking with him. We're looking at going into the newsroom of an NPR station in Chicago. And then there are some of the media analysts from the media bias chart that are based in California, as well as Sally Lehrman from the Trust Project. So those are all people that we want to talk to who are working on solutions to this problem. Yeah, and I saw that you, uh, in the trail that you put together, you'd spoken to Joy Mayer, who's been a guest on this podcast, is a friend mm-hmm. of this podcast, who does uh, Trusting News, the program with the American Press Institute. So what should journalists be doing in what you've been able to cover at this point? We mentioned you know, amplification, don't amplify you know, misinformation. You know, what are our roles as journalists? What do we need to be doing better? Well, I think it's important for journalists to kind of be, you know, transparent, maybe in a way that we never had to, at least in my lifetime, right? I, I grew up in the 60s when there were just, you know, three television news networks. Every major city had one or two news, local newspapers. Things have changed, right? And so with all these different news sources or information sources coming at us, not all of which are trustworthy, not all of which are run by or published by true journalists, journalists need to distinguish themselves. People see journalists as, quote unquote, the media. In fact, this is a point that Joy Mayer makes. Distinguish yourself as you know, a professional journalist. Be transparent. Joy Mayer says it's important for journalists to demonstrate to people that they're interested, they value they invest in showing the complexity of an issue and that they don't actively suppress some voices over others because of what they personally agree with. This is one of the problems, issues that people see as they perceive bias in the selection of stories, in calling out liars sometimes, right? Because they see this coming from everywhere. It's become this inflammatory cauldron, if you will, of you know shame, trying to bring shame to the other side. What you said and what Joy said, I you know I agree with one hundred percent. I think we just need to be do be, do better to make people understand how we do our job, and that we you know have a legitimate interest in there. The other thing I would throw in there that kind of touches on this is when you talk about the types of stories that we cover. You know, this is the diversity issue as well. I mean, we need to have you know diverse newsrooms. We need to have you know diverse people making decisions about the stories we cover. That would improve things. Because so much of the story choices go into the life experience of the people who are in those jobs. And if everybody is a white male of a certain age, then you're going to get a certain perspective in your news coverage. And so, you know, that needs to change. That's absolutely right. And that's been a historical issue as well. And, you know, it's interesting that in the early period of this country, we started to have lots of minority newspapers, lots of black newspapers, right? But as consolidation took over, as the media, as the news media opened into the broadcasting realm, the the ownership, you know, kind of locked minorities out of media ownership. And those voices ended up being suppressed just by a matter of public policy, right? And, you know, today with the decline in local news and newsroom staffs being cut all over the country, it's harder and harder for people to get journalism jobs. And so it really is incumbent upon a news organization to really make an effort to diversify their news staff. You know, don't just wait for a resume of of a minority or, you know, someone to come in. Go out and look for those people, right? Because if your viewership, your readership, your listenership 
does not hear their life experience reflected in your reporting, why would they believe you? Why would they think you understand their community and their situation? Amen to that. When do you anticipate the um, documentary being completed? Target release date is summer of 2023. Oh, we still got some time. <laughs> Hopefully things won't change so much that they'll continue. I think you're going to have plenty of people to talk to because there are a lot of people who are doing really good work. You know, we mentioned Joy and several of the reports that you brought up. There are organizations, there are newsrooms who are making big strides in addressing a lot of these concerns that we've discussed. And I think in that respect, we're on the on the right path. The one thing I did, didn't really kind of bring up, but kind of you touched on is the idea of media literacy. How are you presenting that in your in your documentary? Through people like Joy Mayer, through people like Vanessa Otero, the creator of the Media Bias Chart, we're going to show some of those skills, you know, show people what to pay attention to and maybe point out some things that they weren't aware of. You know, for example, I, I don't get my news off of social media just because I'm not of the generation that pays a lot of attention to social media. A lot of people do. And in fact, I think it's something like... Uh, what, uh, well, it's the most popular news platform, certainly in the 18 to 34 year old age group, right? So what to look for there? We'll have some of those things in the film as well. I also want this film to play for schools, for an educational, in the educational market. Yeah, that's kind of what I was getting at. There are a few organizations that have, have started media. I think one of them is actually called the Media Literacy Project, that they're actually trying to bring media literacy into the classroom you know, middle school and, and high school to get people to understand that, you know, they shouldn't trust everything that they, they hear or see. Anyway, Don, I'm really excited. I can't wait to see this documentary. Thanks for coming in and talking about it. And maybe we'll check in with you when it's release date in a year. Thank you. I really appreciate that. And I really hope that people, you know, if they're interested in this, will check out the film's website. It's trustdocfilm.com for more information. Trust, the word trust. And then uh, follow me on LinkedIn, Twitter, or Facebook. Yeah. Thank you for having me. You've been listening to It's All Journalism, a weekly podcast about the people who make the news. You can find out more about us and download past episodes at itsalljournalism.com. While you're visiting our website, sign up for the It's All Journalism newsletter. You'll get all the latest info about our podcast, including episode notes and news about live events and upcoming interviews. Go to itsalljournalism.com to subscribe. Speaking of subscribing, you can subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Podcast One, Spotify, SoundCloud, Google Play, and pretty much anywhere good podcasts are found. If you'd like to help us grow our podcast, like and share our episodes on social media. Look for us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. It takes a lot of people to create an episode of It's All Journalism. Nicola Grisco produced this episode. Amber Healy wrote our web content. Nick Capre wrote our theme music. Emilio Brust helped with our booking. Steph Thomas is our social media manager. And I'm your host, Michael O'Connell. Thanks for listening. <laughs>